Chairman, my Lords, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very honoured to be invited to give this fifth Cumberland Lodge lecture. Even to look at the names of the first four lecturers was enough to cause severe self-doubt in the mind of the fifth. But you're here, I'm here, so I'd better get on with it. It's a special, particular pleasure to be here because the Barbican had a long and very fruitful cooperation on education projects with Alistair and Cumberland Lodge over many years. So, what do I mean by my title, The Arts, A Suitable Case for Treatment? Are they sick? There's no evidence for that. Are they under threat? They could be so. If so, should they be treated differently from others in straightened economic times? I believe they should. Is this special pleading? You bet it is. <laughs> what kind of treatment am I looking for? Better treatment. Why? Because it makes sense for the arts, for society, for people, for funders. That is the case I aim to make to you this evening. First, though, pages from the diary of an arts junkie. In recent days, your unaverage arts junkies could, and no doubt did, attend some very varied arts events. They, for they are a couple, would have wandered through the theatrical installation underneath Waterloo Station's tunnels and vaults, staged by the Punch Drunk Company. It was an old Vic, yes, an old Vic promotion. Before that, the couple committed an entire day to the Tricycle Theatre at Kilburn, where a sequence of ten new plays set out the tragic, repetitious, and by now wholly predictable consequences of a century and a half of foreign intervention in Afghanistan. Before that, for this couple grazed promiscuously, the Turbine Hall of Tate Modern was the venue for a dance installation by the American choreographer Bill Forsyth. Here, on a flat performance space, to gentle, self-effacing electronic music, a company of 15 dancers made their way through, around, a maze of some 200 small lead pendulums suspended from a forest of thin wires, their bodies either avoiding the pendulums or setting them moving in arbitrary patterns. And before that, they might have taken in the latest work of the German composer and director Heiner Goebbels, where an orchestra explores the experience of war through the centuries with the musicians playing and speaking the words. The words by Gertrude Stein, occasionally uh, intelligible <laughs> and comprehensible. There are two lessons from this small case study. First, the couple, any couple, could have found a score of other similar events being performed in London at this time. These were not exceptional. And that's my second point because it's easy for all of us to overlook how far arts performances, arts practice, have been transformed over the last 10 to 15 years. Typically, today, pieces, most artists create pieces. Doesn't matter what art form they're in. Pieces are created across the art forms, across cultures, across continents. Typically, they seek out new, unorthodox places to perform, they hate conventional theatres, they hate the cross art, they hate curtains, they want a distressed space, something really foul, um, and, 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 and probably edgy, they really like somewhere dirty and edgy, and only just uh, within the bounds of health and safety. Typically, they adapt their chosen form to the needs of expression. The experimental has almost become the norm, 
and the audiences have come with them. For them, such work is the new norm. Now, I make this point for at least two reasons. First, it demonstrates that the arts aren't sitting on their historical laurels, dreaming of and preserving a great historical canon, without thinking of where it needs to move in order to refresh and renew itself. Not that I undervalue the importance and value uh, of the historical canon in any of the art forms. Second, the transformation of so much art's creative practice has marched step by step with an equivalent transformation in the ways that the arts run themselves. The argument for the arts to be a special case, for the arts to deserve special treatment, for the arts to deserve unashamed and unapologetic special pleading rests on this twin revolution in very recent times. A revolution in arts practice accompanied by a revolution in how they are organized and managed. <coughs> now, before I set out my case for this twin revolution in rather more detail, I would acknowledge a certain reality. Special pleading is, of course, a transparent code for don't cut the arts, or at least don't cut them as badly as other services and departments. I don't need to tell this audience that the treasury tradition of equal misery all round is as old as the Chancellor's budget box, or probably older. It's worse than old, though. It is, or should be, out of date. No respectable management guru and they do occasionally say sensible things, would accept equivalent salami slicing across all sausage as the most effective or intelligent way to run a budget. It's lazy and ineffective because it dodges the choices, avoids questions about priorities, and misses the opportunities that sensibly judged cuts can provide. And my special pleading, though, involves something else, an awareness of proportionality. It is actually intellectually dishonest, not to say mathematically ignorant, to assert that the arts <coughs> must take their share of cuts in the interest of getting the national finances as a whole back into equilibrium. The entire arts budget is so small that even, say, a 10% reduction wouldn't materially benefit the national budget. In 2007-2008, Total governmental departmental spending was £586 billion. The sum that the Department for Culture, Media and Sport devoted to the arts, museums and galleries, libraries, architecture and history was £1.1 billion. That is less than 0.2% of the national budget. The idea that an assault on this corner of the national budget offers part of the necessary road to fiscal prudence doesn't bear examination. But a 10% reduction in art spending would reverse, reverse at least a decade of achievement. So much for the proportionality argument. It's disproportionate in its effect. Now, my case that the arts are a specially deserving case for financial treatment rests on a view of history too. It's time to look back at the decade of the Blair years and the way the public debate about the role and place of the arts evolved during that time. <clears throat> to understand what happened, begin at the end, on March the 6th, 2008. 
2008. The venue, Tate Modern. The event, those present, most of Britain's top arts supremos. The occasion, a legacy speech by Tony Blair on New Labour's achievements over the previous decade in the arts. The Prime Minister called Britain's cultural life spectacular. Arts and culture in the United Kingdom were, he said, more confident, more assertive, more creative and alive than a decade ago. Government funding of the arts, he pointed out, had doubled in the decade. It was now on a stable three-year basis, and where new investment had been made, as over free admission to museums or investment in regional theatre, the results in increased attendances have been inspiring. In almost every area of the arts and culture, attendance, usage, visitors, ticket sales had increased. Over a decade, said Tony Blair, the arts had become an important part of what Britain had become. You, the arts, he said, were going to be of fundamental importance to the country. <coughs> and he thanked the nation's architects, dancers, actors, directors, artists, musicians, the curators, the custodians of heritage for their creativity. And the British model of cultural support, he said, the point about that is that public subsidy permits risk-taking. A new breed of entrepreneurial leaders in the arts world has shown that arts of the highest quality, art of the highest quality, is compatible with sound financial discipline. Public subsidy produces a return. Well, this was heavy stuff, or should have been. Why then did the heavily praised art supremos murmur as they left, very nice, but a little late? To explain that rather grudging reaction, and after all, most of the words, phrases, and statistics in the speech had been provided by the arts leaders to number 10 in the days immediately beforehand. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. We need to go back a decade to the early days of new labor at number 10. <clears throat> in those days, the new prime minister opened number 10's doors and hospitality to the luminaries of the rock, pop, and showbiz world. They included Damon Albarn, Noel Gallagher, Chris Evans, Zoe Ball, Liz Dawn, and many others. The problem for the arts world was not who he invited, but who he did not. The arts and culture world who he praised and recognized a decade later were not on Number 10's hospitality radar at the outset. In March 1998, after those parties, I wrote in the Times, the Prime Minister is signalling that Oasis is as important as opera, that chat shows are as important as novels, that television soap operas are more valuable than live theatre. If it had happened just once, it wouldn't have been worth mentioning. But three times, for there were three such Downing Street receptions with such guest lists, Three times is no accident, comrades. <laughs> Partly as a result of that article, Tony Blair called in two dozen or so arts leaders to number 10 in June of 1998. The occasion went well enough, with both sides ready to acknowledge their own shortcomings. Both sides wanted to do better. Tony Blair promised that we must write the arts into our core script. An encouraging phrase that lost a lot of its sheen 
as it was used repeatedly in connection with several other areas of government policy later. <laughs> the core script seemed to get rather full. And it wasn't approved that simple. For a start, while Alistair Campbell once famously said, we don't do God, he might have said even more accurately, the Prime Minister doesn't do the arts. That is a problem of generation and of personal attitude. Incidentally, I sometimes wonder if it is actually better to have a national leader indifferent to the arts or one who knows exactly what his tastes are, for instance, over architecture. <laughs> More damaging still was the fundamental reserve, hostility, even in new labor thinking towards the arts themselves. In New Labour's worldview, the arts were remote, elitist, exclusive, expensive, and irrelevant to most voters. What mattered to government, society, and voters were the creative industries, those economic offshoots of the arts. The outcomes, we would say soon, that resulted from the arts and whose outputs, we would also learn to say, might be considered to justify such spending on the arts. In New Labour ideology, the arts might be valuable only or mainly if they could deliver economic regeneration, better education, social benefit of many kinds. In short, the arts were only justifiable insofar as they were instrumental in delivering a range of economic and social benefits. Now, the last decade, decade of arts policy, those Blair years, was spent in good part in an ideological dispute over this word, instrumentalism. Those of us who warned about the shortcomings of such an approach to arts funding were regularly tarred with the brush, for that is how our critics saw it, of only wanting art for art's sake. Well, we didn't actually, but we did believe that without good arts to start with, then other benefits would never flow, or not flow as well. And so the battle lines or so they were, were drawn. To be on the wrong side could, and sometimes did, cost an organisation money. It wasn't just an argument about words and attitudes. Jobs and positions could be lost for not being ideologically orthodox. And with it came the insidious and universal Whitehall regime of objectives and metrics. Prove to us Prove to us that the arts do good. Show us the numbers that prove you are meeting your objectives. Much time, energy and ingenuity went into devising and imposing ever more complex objectives on arts organisations to demonstrate to the Treasury that the arts were indeed value for money. Much time, energy and sheer cunning were devoted on the other side in meeting, blurring, evading, obfuscating, or occasionally just ignoring those metrics, because they didn't seem to be measuring anything in art, culture, or performance. And behind the whole cumbersome and burdensome bureaucracy of objectives lay the unaddressed but unanswerable fact that no one, especially the Treasury, could measure or define the value of the value itself. Well, like the Thirty Years' War, though somewhat shorter, a truce 
I'll tell you, it wasn't a truce. Uh, well, never mind. A truce was called on January 2008. In his report, commissioned by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, the former director of the Edinburgh Festival, Sir Brian McMaster, stated that the purpose of art subsidy should be supporting excellence in the arts. The report was subtitled, From Measurement to Judgment. The very first section of the, the report was given over to the notion of excellence, not a word that would have passed a, a new Labour Secretary of State for Culture for years before that. The second section was innovation and risk-taking. In his conclusion, McMaster stated that a greater sense of what excellence is within public discourse is required. With three mighty strokes of practicality and empiricism, McBaster dispatched the ideological demons of instrumentalism, numerical objectives, and relativism to the back of the class. Now, it's tempting to say that with this official government report, because it was backed by the DCMS, the arts had triumphed over the bureaucrats and the new Labour relativists. Excellence, judgment, not measurement, these are our words. Our concepts. Was it quite that simple? Well, not altogether. But something else had changed in the intervening period. Engaging with government and stakeholders, meeting objectives, countering the demands of crude instrumentalism, these had led to a transformation of the way that the arts were run. So perhaps rather than seeing the last decade as a crude battleground, Perhaps the more accurate image might be the process of Hegelian synthesis. In struggling to reconcile the thesis of art for art's sake with the antithesis of arts for the sake of what they do, the arts world changed itself. So what happened? A decade and a half ago, hardly a quarter of a year passed without news of the financial artistic plight of a leading arts organisation. Sometimes it seemed that they almost took it in turns by rope to fall into crisis. First the Royal Opera and its huge rebuilding project, then English National Opera and its seeming failure to retain a general director for more than a couple of years. Then the question whether we really needed two opera houses, two opera companies, two orchestras. The RSC ran a string of deficits, bailed out by the City of London, the British Museum itself plunged into deficit. The press, of course, didn't help, but then it's not their job to do so. But it did seem as if arts correspondents couldn't entertain the possibility that two rival organisations in the same arts sector could be successful at the same time. If the National Theatre was up, then the RSE had to be down. It seemed artistically and humanly impossible that both the Royal Opera and the MO could both be doing good work at the same time. And there was, after all, an audience, usually a different one, for both. I think it's very significant that recent reviews of productions at uh, English National Opera have specifically said both opera houses are working at the top of their form. Fifteen years ago, inconceivable. That is, that is one indication of how much has changed. Now, I don't blame the media for reporting and reflecting the general air of doom-laden incompetence 
that surrounded the arts a decade or more ago. The arts provided easy targets, rich and very easy pickings. I do mention in passing that all, as almost all arts, arts organisations ran into serious deficit, there was a reason for this. In Sir Richard Eyre's report on the future of the opera houses, he noted that there was an exact match between the accumulated deficits of most major performing organisations and the standstill funding, i.e. cut in real terms, that they had received for several years previously. <coughs> That's not an excuse, and certainly partially an explanation. For the evidence is that most major arts organisations were poorly run a decade ago, and they improved hugely during that decade, partly or largely as a result of the intense debate about why fund the arts at all. So what happened? If bureaucrats and politicians had their hang-ups, so did arts leaders. Mainly, they were about management, that voguish new skill of the 1990s. For many arts bodies, I'm sorry to say, that the very idea of managing their organisation was alien, they didn't know how to do it. Strange, it involved vocabularies and terms that scarcely sounded like English. They were never couched in sentences, they were always couched in bullet points on um, you know, that, that, that shaped paper. And almost certainly antithetical to the values of what they stood for and had been educated to do. What had management to contribute to scholarship or to knowledge? or to curating, or to directing, or designing, or to any one of the great fine high arts. Why should a great scholar know about a budget, still less how to manage it? Why should a theatre or opera director need to know about the budget for his latest production? Wasn't there a company accountant who added up the invoices as they came in, however large they might be? Why should the designer work to budget if his sets and costumes came in rather expensive? Wasn't he hired for his flair, his genius? And what was the general director of the Opera House there for, in any case? For within some of the deepest corners of the arts world, there was hatred of management, scorn of the values of businessmen who were increasingly re recruited to introduce practicality and common sense, into the way the arts spent and earned money. At that time, the worst thing anyone could say was to suggest that the arts should be business-like. Business-like, you'll note, not a business as such. And while the arts world was engaged in the external contest with the instrumentalists, the arts themselves were riven by questions of how they needed to alter their behavior to meet the demands of their funders. Change came. How? Boards looked for leaders who could and would manage without selling the art short. They double-banked the leadership of major institutions, an artistic leader and a strong chief executive. They found administrators from outside the arts world who wanted to deliver business-like teams who knew, though, that the first priority was arts excellence and their second one, close behind, was to control and manage the budget. And arts leaders with a reputation for indifference 
to these new and necessary skills was simply not appointed or reappointed. <coughs> Just as the vogue for appointing abrasive business leaders to arts organisations proved to be both mistaken and short-lived. So arts and management came to cohabit in a way that seemed natural and was certainly necessary. And the learning process within the arts went, I believe, wider still. Because if ministers put the access, outreach, education and inclusion agendas ahead of the arts excellence agenda, this might seem tiresome and was probably wrong. But, short of telling them to get lost, it seemed prudent to address these socially driven agendas and look at them in new positive ways. After all, was education merely a way of building the audience of the future? Wasn't outreach a way of bringing the arts to children who wouldn't otherwise experience them? Wasn't social inclusion a wise way of broadening the appeal of the arts? Give or take a bit, more and more arts organisations adopted the government's social agendas, sometimes as an act of cal calculation, sometimes with conviction, often with a mixture of the two. But they did so without selling the arts short. <coughs> and as they did so, they became professional in a range of activities previously not seen as useful, still less essential part of a great arts institution. Marketing, audience loyalty, development, education, publicity, commercial sales became vital part of a newly managerially focused arts institution. When I joined the Barbican, there was no education department at all. Inconceivable now. And you know, as a result of this, it didn't make the arts that were provided less good, because such a professionalized institution used scarce resources better, indeed, because it generated increased resources. The arts organization was not only more efficient, it was better all round. But, and this is the crucial but, the arts in these institutions which behaved like this were always placed first. So what happened was that the instrumentalism argument had been turned on its head. The social agenda became instrumental in providing the best possible arts. It's this decade-long transformation of the way the arts manage themselves that constitutes a large part of the case that they today should be a special case for treatment. So, where do we stand today? Peace has broken out in the ideological war. Excellence is reinstated. The arts can look management consultants in the eye. We know the trick words, the catchphrases. We can recognize snake oil when it's offered to us. The real and fake nostrums. We've adopted and adapted the skills of management to the very particular needs of the world of the arts. So, is that it? Not quite, only perhaps not at all. There's far more going on in the arts than a casual observer, any of us here, might realise. And it is that part of the current scene that I want to turn to now, because understanding what's going on in the current art scene is a further reason for claiming that the arts really do deserve special treatment.
Over the last month, I've had a rare opportunity to look deep into the art scene today in a way that I've never been able to do before. Every year for the last six, the Claw Leadership Foundation has identified some 25 arts leaders of the future from a list of almost 300 applicants, a short list of 70 who were interviewed. And this process gave me an extraordinary insight into Britain's arts. For the 70 shortlisted amounted to a dipstick into the arts body spiritual. What we found, what I saw, was a body of very serious, very committed, very dedicated, very professional people who work in organizations large and small across the country, in arts bodies and local authorities, in fund givers, fund seekers, administrators and artists. And more importantly still, the range and depth of their engagement and involvement with society with the young, the disabled, the poorly educated, BME minorities, is striking, admirable, and little known. Uh, I mentioned in passing that at the Royal Philharmonic Society Awards just two weeks ago, the award for public engagement went to an organization called Streetwise Opera. Streetwise Opera, a group entirely devoted to creating opera with the unemployed in Sheffield. And the RPS judges didn't give it to them as some sort of consolation prize for doing the right things. They did it on the grounds of sheer excellence. I'd never heard of Streetwise Opera before. I dare say you haven't. There's only one example of institutions, organizations, which I think are transforming the art scene all around us. And that question of ignorance, I think one of the obstacles in arguing the case for the arts is that too often funders, stakeholders, governments know too little about what the arts are, where they are, and what they do. Very recently, the finance director of a large arts distributor told me of the problems of negotiating with the Treasury culture team. All they talk about, he protested, is Covent Garden. They think that the Royal Opera and a few such are, are the arts in Britain. So what I'm going to do is to hire a minibus, put the Treasury team in it, take them out for a day, and take them to a range of arts organisations that are not Covent Garden, because they must get a better idea of what the arts world is really like. I must ask, say, must ask him what happened on that trip. I bet half of them didn't turn up pleading urgent Treasury business. So how can arts policy at any level be sensibly devised and conducted if the basic position of a chief stakeholder is lack of understanding or just plain ignorance? The same or similar might be said of local authorities. If I may mention, I'm sure it's not true here. Uh, many of whom fund arts activities of an extraordinary range. Do they understand what they are funding? From the evidence of the Claw Fellowship interviewees, many of whom work in local authorities, their masters are still wedded to instrumentalism, and many of them are committed to reaching strategic agreements over funding. That is, we will pay you this, but in return you must achieve, the art, you the arts organisation, must achieve the following targets in connection with social and economic objectives. Very recently, one local authority not very far away from here told its concert hall that further funding was indeed available, 
that one of the conditions that had to be delivered was an improvement in local road safety figures in the town concerned. <laughs> when the board said this was both wrong and impossible, the local authority wriggled, but then admitted that the only pot of available extra money they had lay in the road safety budget. <laughs> On second thoughts, being a decent lot, they gave the money and dropped the objective. Now, why does all this matter? Doesn't dispensing public money demand that recipients are accountable for how they spend it? Of course. But it does not follow that the money is better, still less best spent, if the donor, the stakeholder, decides beforehand what the desired results should be. <coughs> and locking arts organisations into prescript prescriptive agreements has another even more damaging result. It creates an atmosphere, a culture, where initiative, imagination, independence of thought are held back or even discouraged. And the evidence that I've seen from many people working in local authorities is of bureaucratic inertia, restraint on independence, and a formulaic response to leadership. This saps energy, demotivates ability and people at a distressing rate. And that brings me naturally to the root cause of so many of these ills, the objectives culture. You might have thought by now that the experience of the distortions created by an insistence on and obsession with objectives was so well documented that the high watermark of the objectives culture would have uh, had been reached and that the tide behind ideas of compliance would be on the wane, on the ebb. <coughs> Writing about the Stafford Hospital scandal a few months ago, where pursuing targets, according to the official report, led to a possible 400 extra deaths in that hospital over three years, the observer, Simon Corkin, could scarcely contain his anger. And remember that the general criticisms he makes of the target culture and health provision apply equally to the others. He wrote, The health service has been engineered to deliver abstract meta-goals, such as four-hour waiting times in A&E and halving MRSA, which it does, sort of, but not individual care, which is what people actually experience. Consequently, even when targets are met, citizens detect no improvement. Hence the desperate and depressing ministerial calls for, in effect, new targets to make NHS staff show compassion and teachers to teach interesting lessons. Or, you might say, arts organisations to be excellent. Excellent. The similarities are there. And Simon Corkin's conclusion was very severe, but I think absolutely right. He said, targets make organisations stupid because they are a simplistic response to a complex issue. They have unintended and unwelcome consequences. Target-driven organisations are institutionally witless because they face the wrong way towards ministers and target setters, not customers or citizens. In a devastating critique of the gobbledygook and cant of much, that's all, management theory in the Times in March this year, Andrew Villan pointed out that at least 
four English police forces had decided to abandon government targets in favor of, wait for it, common sense. <laughs> the acting chief constable of Surrey dared to say, I want chief officers to apply their professional judgment and discretion to do the right thing. There's a thought almost as radical as committing arts leaders to delivering excellence. And Bivan looked forward to a newly empowered world, and note the sarcasm, where managers would be chosen not for their ability to bandy jargon with their superiors, but for their empathy, pragmatism, experience, and decisiveness with their staff. Applying any, all of these observations to the arts world, to what too many stakeholders are demanding, and you will see still the scale of the danger. Because if not checked, the result is demoralized and undermotivated, frustrated staff internally, and underperforming organizations externally, a double whammy of failure of a stupendous kind. And if there's one word that expresses the dead end into which the objectives culture can lead us, it is process. For by its nature, and probably by its intention, process never ends. In the classic managerial jargon, process ensures the outcome of key deliverables. It doesn't. It just delivers more process. It doesn't actually do anything. Do I need to underline the way that these nostrums can damage the effectiveness, the value of the arts world? I don't think so. But my argument is not about limiting the damage that flows from such attitudes, important as that is. It is about trying to achieve the best possible art and not destroying what has been achieved. The arts deserve special treatment, and a wise government will give it, because the sector by and large has not fallen into the trap of adopting the objectives culture wholesale. Rather, it has shown how government's social objectives, legitimate as they are, can be adopted and adapted without disturbing the fundamental purposes of the arts. This is, or should be, a valuable lesson for much of government and the civil service to apply elsewhere. In the past decade, the arts have used their funding well. They have not plunged into deficit. They have taken and managed risk. They have transformed the way they are run. They offer strong and effective leadership models and allow real internal creativity. They are focused on doing things, putting on operas, plays, concerts and exhibitions, not on processing objectives. They are international in their outlook. They've developed strong models of local engagement. As Tony Blair said in March last year, the atmosphere of the culture of the country feels different, more confident, more assertive, more creative, and alive. This is an enormous achievement, one that we have done together. It serves our country well, will serve it further in the future. It is something we will and must cherish. That was only a year and a bit ago. That is today's challenge, as any government contemplates spending cuts of an unparalleled size. If the nation can't look after its success stories, if it's, if it's indifferent to a decade of historic achievement in the arts, what hope is there? <laughs>